invite you all to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9. Our text this morning will be verses 15 through the end of the chapter, verse 28. And as you are turning in your Bibles, flipping open in your electronic device, I'd like to share a story with you that um, happens to me when I was in West Africa doing mission work. And this has been, as I was studying this text and praying over this text, this just kept coming to mind. Uh, and um, some of you may have heard this story before, but for those who haven't, a lot of the work that I did in West Africa when I did mission work there was people group research. So I was on what was called the engagement team. We were looking for um, people groups that were less than 100,000 and looking to engage them with the gospel by connecting them to churches here in the States. And um, one such people group that I was researching was uh, called the Kunyagi people. And my research was very, very scientific and technical in that I would look at a very vague map of Senegal and there would be this kind of circular bubble nebulous color that said the Konyagi people are roughly in this area. So I knew, okay, so if I head out to the eastern part and the southeastern part of the country, I can start asking questions around. So I headed out with my interpreter, and it was, I don't know, a six to eight hour drive east. Uh, and then we um, eventually got to a point and we said, this seems like a good place to start doing our research. So we pulled up on the side of the road in this one village. My interpreter rolled his window down, stopped a random person and said, hey, do you know any Konyagi people? And um, to which they said, no, I don't, but there might be some in the next village. Great, thank you. So we drove on to the next village. Hey, do you know any Konyagi people? And so it went village after village down the, the main road until somebody finally said, yes, I know, I know a Konyagi person, great. Do you mind taking us to them? So they would hop into our car and then we would drive on these little tiny roads, if you can call them that, in between um, huts and mud huts and different things until we came to somebody. And then that person said, well, I'm not actually a Konyagi, but um, my sister is married to a Konyagi person up in the next town. Um, I'd be willing to ride with you up there if you like. Great, so we said thank you to the first person that guy hopped into our car with us and we drove on to the next place. And so it went and our very technical scientific research and how to track down Konyagi people. So you can take notes, write those down in your journals. So if you're ever doing people group research, it's a great method. Well, in doing this, we got to one town. I met some chiefs uh, of the Konyagi people that, that were there in this one village. And then we said, we're going on to the next big city was Tambacunda. And one of the guys said, oh, I know the Konyagi people that live there. Um, you can, uh, if you want, I need to go there anyway, so I'll take you to him. So great. So he hopped in. We went on to Tambacunda, and we were talking. And he said, also, south of here in another town, Velengara, is um, my sister lives there. And I will call her and let you know. She will meet you at the gas station that's right at the entrance to town. And then she will take you to some Konyagi people. Awesome. So after spending an hour or so in Tambacunda, we drove down and then met his sister um, in Velengara, and she said, she said, yes, I know um, the, the elders of the Konyagi people. Great. So we um, went to her house. She called them. They came, and they said, well, we're not the elders, but we will take you to our chief. Awesome. 
So they hopped in our car, and then we drove and um, went to meet um, this man whose name is Jean-Pierre, um, and I affectionately call him Nicodemus because um, that trip, we just simply talked to him um, and said, hey, I've got a team from the States that wants to come out and meet Konyagi people, and I'm trying to line up places where we can come, we can hang out, we do whatever work you want us to do. You want us to go out into the, into the villages and, or into the fields and work with you, we'll do whatever. We just want to meet you. They've been praying for you. They'd like to build relationships with you. And he said, yeah, that's great. So the next trip, I came out with uh, two gentlemen from Arkansas. They were leaders of the, I think at the time they were BCMs. Now I think they're BSUs um, or whatever. The Baptist uh, Student Unions or Collegiate Ministries or whatever they call them now these days. Um, but these two guys headed up um, those ministries on two different university campuses in Arkansas. And so we came out and we went back to see uh, Nicodemus. And during that time, we took um, about 30 minutes or so to story from the crea creation all the way through the resurrection. And, um, and afterwards, um, in talking with him, engaging him in conversation, he looked at us and he said, no one can tell me that God does not exist because I can look at the trees and I can see the wind blowing the trees and I can't see the wind, but I know the wind is there just by seeing the trees move. And, um, and then uh, we told him, we talked about uh, more about the gospel and he said, you know, I've always wanted to have this light inside of me that just burns and shines bright for everybody else to see. And so then in sharing the gospel, we said, you must be born again. And he laughed and he said, I'm an old man. How is that possible? How can I be born again? And so, hence, I affectionately call him Nicodemus. And it has been at least 14 years since I've seen him, since I've had any contact. I have no idea if he's still alive or not at all. But um, throughout many of our conversations, I would make special trips out. It was sometimes eight hours out of my way to go on one of my next research trips. But I would make a special trip around the country just to stop in and see how he was doing and what God was doing in his life. And the stories that um, I could share, I could share all morning long, just stories of how God was working in his life. But our passage today that we are going to be talking through um, is definitely something that he heard. He heard the gospel and he embraced the truth that is found in our scripture this morning. And so I am excited to share this passage of scripture with you. Um, and so my prayer is that you would also hear it and believe it in the same way that Nicodemus did. In the middle of nowhere in Africa, a man who had never heard the gospel before was quoting scripture to us, and it was just an amazing experience. So our scripture this morning comes from Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15. If you would, if you're able to, stand as we read out of respect for the word of God. The author of Hebrews writes, Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, 
since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For where every commandment, for when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for preserving your word for us this morning. God, thank you for this opportunity to come here and to hear you speak. God, I pray that you would speak this morning, not I. God, that I would be silent and your words would speak through me. God, be with us in this place this morning. Glorify yourself. Exalt the name of Jesus Christ. Stir us up to love and good works this morning. For your glory, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. So our text, there's a lot here. And I would love to take a deep dive into every verse and just walk through it all. We would be here for several hours if I did that, so I'm not going to do that this morning. Instead, what I'd like to do is I'd like to focus in on key points throughout our passage this morning, beginning in verse 15. And we read at the beginning here, the author writes, Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. And as we have said many times here, and as you probably already know the cliche, whenever you read the word therefore, you have to ask yourself, what is it there for? So let's look back in verse 13 uh, and read 13 and 14. And this is what Denton preached on last week. So I just want to refresh ourselves of this. The author writes, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish, blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. So we see that Christ is mediating on our behalf. And we ask ourselves, what exactly is a mediator? 
Well, a mediator is a go-between between two parties that are at odds with each other. We see this happening right now between Russia and Ukraine. Turkey is playing mediator between the two. So Turkey has managed to broker a deal where Russia will allow the export of grain from Ukraine, Ukraine being one of the largest producers of grain in the entire world and feeds a vast majority of the entire world. And because of the war, grain is not getting anywhere. And there are people that are starving. There are people that are facing hardships because of this war that don't even necessarily know that Ukraine exists as a country. But Turkey has stepped in has brokered a uh, truce and a deal between the two to allow grain to export. Now, they've been trying to broker other peace deals and um, other things to no avail. So their mediation is only partially successful. But here we see Christ mediating a new covenant. So we have to look at what the old covenant was. And Denton talked at length last week about the old covenant. And so I don't necessarily want to jump into all of those details. But one thing that we do see in the old covenant is that we are a sinful people. All of humanity has rebelled against God. We have rejected God's authority. We've rejected his love. We've rejected his grace. And at the fall in Genesis, we see Adam and Eve setting the stage, setting the precedent to which we follow on a regular basis where we say, you know what? We don't need God. We can do this on our own. So God, in his loving grace and kindness, chose a people for himself, chose the nation of Israel to be his people. And he said, you being a sinful and wicked people, if you want to have any kind of fellowship with me, if you want to enter into my rest, this is what you must do. This is the covenant that you must agree to and you must follow. That is the old covenant. And we see that kind of explained a little bit more in verses 18 through 21, uh, where Moses, after God gave Moses all of the commandments, Moses sealed that covenant with the sprinkling of blood, and he sprinkled blood on everything. And so that sealed that covenant. That was the old covenant that was sealed. We read at the beginning of 22, indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. So Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. So this is something different. This is something new that is replacing the old. So what is this new covenant look like? Well, we know from Jeremiah 31 what this new covenant, what God promised this new covenant would look like. And in Hebrews chapter 8, the author quotes. So if you would, look back one chapter in your Bible to Hebrews chapter 8, verse 8. We can read the words of Jeremiah as he is quoting God here. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers, on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God. And they shall be my people. 
And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. This is the new covenant that Christ is mediating on our behalf. We have been at odds with God. There has been division. There, have, there has been war that we have been raging against God. And Christ steps in and God says, I will establish a new covenant. And Christ enters in to broker that covenant on our behalf. The question is why? Why would Christ do this? We continue reading in Hebrews 15. The author writes, So that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. So Christ mediates a new covenant so that those who are called, and we, as part of our declaration of pardon, we read in Romans chapter 8. I want to read just one verse, verse 29, actually verse 30, I should say. Paul writes, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So Christ mediates a new covenant, a new covenant in which his laws, the laws of God, are not written on stone tablets that are then sealed away in an ark that only the high priest can go in once a year to see. But God takes those laws and writes them on our hearts and puts them in our minds so that those who are called, he can justify. And those he justifies, he can glorify. And here we see that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. So we have an inheritance that is eternal. And when I read this, my mind jumps to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, where Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So Christ is mediating a new covenant. The old has been done away with, and the new has come and this new covenant has come in so that those who are called may receive the eternal inheritance that is unfading, that is undefiled, that is being kept in heaven for you. And that is, brings so much joy and so much confidence that Christ would set out to do this. And then we read in the last part of verse 15, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So Christ is the mediator of a new covenant 
that is initiated with death. A death has occurred that redeems them, that redeems those who are called, that those who have an eternal inheritance, we have that because someone died on our behalf. And that death redeems us from sins committed. So those sins are wiped away. Those sins are washed clean because of this death. Verses 16 and 17 seem to shift gears slightly, for he says, for where a will is involved. So he switches from talking about a covenant to talking about a will. Now, this gets a little confusing in the English language, but in Greek, it's the same word. The word that he uses for covenant is the same word that he uses for will in verses 16 and 17. And so the idea here, when he shifts gears, he's talking about the last will and testament. So if we think of somebody, you're, getting, you're advancing in years, you create a will so that your inheritance, everything that you have passes on to the designated people that you want them to pass on to. This is your last will and testament. This does not take effect until you pass away. And so the author says that exact same thing here, for where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. And until that happens, the will doesn't take effect. This last will and testament does not take effect until the death of the one who made it. So God has created this new covenant, which is his last will and testament. Under the old covenant, we see God giving all of the commands and everything to Moses. And we read in verse 19, for when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet and sprinkled this on everybody. And we see this kind of exchange where God says, this is how you live. This is what you must do. And the people all respond and says, yes, we will live this way. Yes, we will act this way. Yes, we will behave this way. We will live according to your commands. And that covenant was sealed by everything being sprinkled with blood. There were two parties that came together and agreed to these terms. But now under the new covenant, the terms are all set up by God. And so there is nothing that we must do now. It's done. God created the terms. And then God himself executed those terms and those conditions. And so his last will and testament takes effect with the death of Christ. And that new covenant is ushered in. So there's nothing that we have to do. Under the old covenant, if you sinned, you had to sacrifice and sacrifice and sacrifice. And depending on how you sinned, there were different sacrifices. There, you sacrificed a bull in this scenario, a goat here, doves here if you couldn't afford a goat or a bull. There were grain offerings and there were other offerings. There were all these other different forms in which people had to go through just to approach the outer courts of God and the outer sanctuary of God. But now under the new covenant with the death that it says in verse 15, since a death has occurred that redeems them, this death ushered in this new covenant and executed the last will and testament of God. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. There is a blood covenant that is initiated here. 
couple months ago, I was at my grandfather's funeral in Texas talking to my aunt, and she said something that we have probably all heard in one form or another. She said, your uncle and I, we are New Testament Christians. We believe in Jesus. We like Jesus's teachings on love and peace and getting along with people. The Old Testament, you know, there's just like a very angry God and just a lot of death and everything else. But the New Testament, Jesus, that's who we follow. That's who we like. And I, I'm sure you've probably heard something similar to that from somebody along the, along the way. But I tell you, it is one and the same God. It is one and the same action. If you don't like the angry God and the God who brings about death in the Old Testament, he brings about death in the New Testament as well. And in the New Testament, he brings about the death of his son. And there are people that reject God because what kind of God would kill their own son? How terrible is that? What kind of awful God is that? I don't want to follow that. But that is God's love and mercy. It is not an act of a deranged God. It is not the act of a sadistic God who kills his own son. It is the act of one who says, I love my people to the point where I want to solidify this relationship once and for all. Because we read in verse 22, indeed under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. The only way for purification to come in is through the shedding of blood. And then we read, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So unless there is something that dies, there cannot be forgiveness of sins. And we have read over and over in Hebrews, and we're going to see it again in just a moment. The blood of goats and bulls is insufficient. Denton preached on this last week. We read in uh, Hebrews 9, verse 9, the author says, According to this arrangement, being the old covenant, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. But only deal, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. And so then we see in verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself up without blemish to God, how much more will the blood of Christ purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So in order for there to be a new covenant, in order for God to write his laws on our hearts and on our minds and to call us his people, and we can call him his, our God, and he will not remember our iniquities anymore, something must appease God's wrath. Because we read in Scripture, in Romans, God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness of mankind. Because of our sin, we are under God's wrath, under his judgment. And so something must appease that. And the only way for God's wrath to be appeased is if we die. 
because we have violated, we have sinned against a holy God who is unlike anything you can possibly imagine. We have sinned against him in such vile ways that the only justice that there can be is if we die. And yet God, being rich in mercy, sent his son to be our mediator, to be our offering, to be sacrificed for us. And he shed his blood so that our sins can be forgiven. 23, we see, thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So the old covenant is simply pointing to the new covenant and Christ's sacrifice far better than the old covenant sacrifice. And then we read in 24, for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. So Christ didn't just enter into the inner circle of the tabernacle. He didn't go into the holy of holies in the temple. Those all are images and shadows and copies, but he went into heaven itself. We read in Hebrews chapter 1, verse, starting in verse 1, the author opens this letter saying, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The Son of God, the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature, the one through whom the world was created. You were created through Christ. Whether you acknowledge him or reject him, doesn't matter. You were created through Christ. And you are upheld by the word of his power. The whole universe exists by Christ's word. From the greatest, most amazing things that exist out in the universe, you are breathing in oxygen because of Christ's word. And his word allows that to happen. You are sitting here, not floating away into outer space because of Christ's word. We can walk outside into sunshine and not be evaporated by the sun's radiation because, yes, because of our Earth's atmosphere, but our atmosphere only exists because Christ is holding it together with his word. From the greatest, most amazing thing to what seems the smallest thing, little children, the miracle of birth, that happens by the word of Christ's power. And tomorrow, we're going to experience the miracle of birth when little Gemma Ice comes into the world and she is being held together right now by the word of Christ's power. That Christ, that God 
stepped out of heaven, took on flesh, became a man, lived the life that we could not live to die for us. He died to usher in a new covenant. He died to bring about a change that couldn't have come about any other way. The only way for God's laws to be written on the hearts and minds of a sinful people that hated him. The only way for God to be able to be in the same room with us without us being incinerated because of our sin. The only way for that to happen was for there to be a perfect sacrifice. And that is Jesus Christ. The radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature, the most powerful being on this planet, humbled himself and died for us to usher in this new relationship. But he entered into heaven now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So he is there seated at the right hand of God the Father on our behalf. God is there. Jesus Christ is there next to God daily, mediating for us, interceding for us on a daily basis. This is the new covenant. This is why we gather on Sunday mornings. This is why we sing. We sing to worship Christ who did this amazing thing for us. 25 and 26, the author tells us that it is far greater what he did because he did it once and it's done. Whereas the priests of old, you can go back and listen to other sermons on this. The priests of old, they had to do it on a constant basis over and over and over again because it never satisfied. But Christ did it once. It's done. No more. No more does there need to be a sacrifice. No more does Christ need to die over and over and over again. He did it once and for all. It is finished is what he said as he hung up on the cross and he gave his soul up and he died finishing the work that he set out to do, ushering in the new covenant. Verses 27 and 28. This is where we're going to end and we're going to conclude here. I want, I want you to just pay really close attention to this because this is so important. 27, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. You don't get reincarnated. This is it. This life you are living right now, this is it. This is the only life you have. And once you die, that's it. There's no second chances. You will go and stand before God. You will stand before the judgment seat of God. And you will either be found to be in the new covenant where Christ's blood covers you, where Christ's blood wipes away your sin, or you will be found under the laws of the old covenant, which is imperfect, which is not sufficient to save you. That should cause us to pause. And for some of us, 
that should cause us to tremble. That is a fearful thing to go and stand before God on your own without Jesus Christ. Because you will stand there and you will be judged and you will be found guilty unless you are found in the new covenant. Unless Christ's sacrificing work covers you. Unless his blood is sprinkled on you to purify you. If that is the case, then Christ looks upon you and he sees Christ's death and he says to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into my rest. But without Christ, when you stand before the judgment and you say to God, didn't I go to church on a regular basis? Didn't I pray? Didn't I do miracles? Didn't I cast out demons in your name? Look at all these great works that I did for you. Christ will say, depart from me, you son of lawlessness. I never knew you. And you will stand before God on your own. So many religions teach so many different things, but they all come down to the same idea. You can do it on your own. If you do this, if you do this, if you do this, you'll make it to the end. Whatever the end of that religion says. For some, it's nirvana. You get reincarnated over and over again, and as you live a good life, you'll be reincarnated as a better life, and then a better life, and then a better life, until you cease to exist. Other religions say, do good works. And as long as your good works outweigh your bad works, God will accept you and let you in. But that is not the case. We see that here, that doing good works can never atone for sin. Sacrificing animals can never atone for sin. There are many cultures in the world today that still sacrifice animals to their deities, to their gods, to their religion, hoping to appease those deities so that those deities would give them power to overcome and be able to enter into whatever heaven looks like for them. That will never happen because those deities don't exist. And so they are making sacrifices for nothing. They are working hard, striving hard to live a good life for nothing. Because once you die, that's it. You don't come back. You will stand before God. Verse 28. Just as, well, verse 27, just as it is appointed for man to die once, after that comes judgment. Verse 28, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. If you are found in Christ Jesus, this is your hope. Christ is coming again. Don't forget that. Don't forget that Christ is coming back. One of the many trips that I made back to see Nicodemus, on one of those trips, his son, his eldest son, we were talking through, um, through the gospel. We were talking through these things again. And he said, you know, I've been reading the Bible and um, that you left. And I just had a question. Is this it? Does this ever end? I said, what do you mean? He said, well, we sin and people are going to keep sinning, and more people are going to be born, and more people are going to keep sinning. Is this just going to keep going on and on and on forever? And the answer is no. 
one day Christ will return and this will all be done away with. That is our hope. And so we wait eagerly for Christ to come back. He will not come back to die for sin. He's already done that. He will come back to save those who are eagerly waiting for him to come back. For those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, there is a hope that the struggles that we are facing today, the dysfunction that we see in our relationships, the the stress that we have from working jobs that we may not like, that may feel overwhelming the effects of the fall and sin that we see on a daily basis where people are killed, people are tortured, people go through awful, awful things in this world because of sin, all of that will one day be done away with. And so we wait eagerly for the return of Jesus Christ. So as you go about your day, don't focus your attention on the hardships. Look to the coming of Christ. Because either Christ will come back in our lifetime or we will go to meet him when our time on earth is done. Either way, there is hope because we have an inheritance that is being kept in heaven for us, that is there waiting for us, and God is preserving us by his power and his strength, not our own, because we couldn't do it on our own, but God is preserving us because we've placed our faith in Jesus Christ and believe the work that he has accomplished on the cross, that he died for our sins and rose again from the dead, and we are under a new covenant. We look to Christ and we wait with hope. That hope we need to share with the world around us because they have no hope. They might claim to have hope, but it is a false hope. It is a temporary hope that will not last. And so we must declare this truth that Christ came, he died, he rose again and is coming back. So today, if you are here in this room and you have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, I say to you what the scriptures have said, do not wait. Today is the day of salvation. Today, if you hear this, do not harden your hearts, but repent, call out to God. I cannot do this. Please, Father, I need you. Call out to him and he will save you because he is faithful. If that is you today, come and talk to me. Come and talk to Denton or Robert after the service. We would love to talk to you more about what it means to follow Jesus Christ. And if you are here this morning and you can say with confidence that I do follow Jesus Christ, then do not keep silent. Go out and tell others this truth. And as you do, do not fear, but look to the coming of Christ. He is your hope. This world is not all there is. The stress that we face is not all there is. We can make it through day after day, week after week, of whatever hardship we might face because of the work that Christ has accomplished because what we are facing is only temporary. Christ is coming back. Let's pray.